Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, Dr. Andrew Yochinski joins the show again. On April 6th, 2021, Dr. Yochinski joined the show and we had a conversation about monasticism during the Crusades. Then on July 13th, 2021, so the same year, Dr. Yochinski joined the show again and we had a conversation about early Christian monasticism in the Eastern Mediterranean. Today, Dr. Yochinski returns to the show and we're going to have a conversation about ancient Christian anchorites in the Mediterranean basin. Dr. Yochinski is Professor of Medieval History at Royal Holloway, University of London, based in the UK. He has written many publications over his career, including co-authoring a book with the late Emeritus Professor Bernard Hamilton, which is entitled Latin and Greek Monasticism in the Crusader States, which was published by Cambridge University Press. And Dr. Yochinski joins the show today from the UK. Welcome back on the show, Andrew. Thank you, Andrew. As always, very good to be uh, back with you. Likewise, always good to connect with you, Andrew. So to create enough background and context for the conversation, and then we'll work our way into the details, Andrew, what is an anchorite? An anchorite is uh, someone following a religious life um, who lives alone, usually, uh, or um, apart from a settled community or, or society. Um, the word comes from a Greek term that means someone who uh, rejects um, a settled community or flees from um, uh, normal, the normal kind of networks and patterns of life. What's known about the etymology of the word anchorite? Well, it comes from a Greek word anachoresis, um, and it initially uh, an anchorite is, is, is literally someone who has fled, um, someone who has um, left uh, society. Uh, and sometimes the word, uh, when, it's, when it, we've first uh, come across the word in records from uh, 3rd and 4th century Egypt, um, it doesn't necessarily always have a religious connotation. So it could just mean someone who has um, fled their village, for example, to evade taxation uh, or to run away from um, a legal case, uh, for example. But increasingly, uh, it came in the fourth century and beyond uh, to have specific connotations of religious withdrawal, um, leaving society in order to pursue a religious vocation following God. What's known about the, their goals then, and anchorites' goals in the, ancient, in the ancient period? You mentioned that they, I believe you used the term, uh, re rejected they would re reject a, a community or a society. Um, you, you mentioned that they're, I, um, I'm paraphrasing a bit, but my sense was yeah. they're, they're pursuing a, a relationship with God, um, perha yeah. perhaps a closer relation, they're pers perhaps pursuing a closer relationship with God. Can you, can you describe um, what's known about what, what the aims uh, and goals of anchorites were in the ancient period? Yeah, um, most anchorites, um, wanted to uh, be, uh, if not completely alone, at least in a setting um, where they weren't distracted by the demands of family life um, or of village life 
um, all the things that uh, require um, obligations um, and um, uh, kind of having to think about the everyday. Um, so when we talk about anchorites, we're not necessarily always talking about uh, someone who lives completely alone. Um, sometimes anchorites might group together uh, and very often um, they would gather around them followers or um, we, we might say disciples to whom they were kind of teaching um, the religious life. Um, and this is true uh, whether we look at uh, Egypt, uh, where the practice first starts in the third century, whether we look at um, the provinces, Roman provinces of Palestine and Syria um, uh, or Asia Minor, um, we find small groups of anchorites, um, but the, what, what's constant is a rejection um, of the obligations that tie them to ordinary life. Um, we might sort of say the obligations that require them to earn a living and have a place in society. Uh, and particularly the obligations of family life. That's, that's what they're rejecting. How are they doing that? Um, through trying to, um, uh, to, to um, install themselves in uh, places that uh, are not yet settled um, by uh, human habitation and following a regime based on uh, prayer, um, on meditation um, and on manual labor. Uh, and um, the manual labor that most anchorites uh, devote themselves to is what we would think of as kind of craft work. Uh, so in Egypt, um, very many anchorites would occupy themselves um, with making um, baskets or rope um, from the uh, plants that grow in the uh, Nile uh, Delta um, in, in that kind of region. And that's kind of manual activity um, that focuses the mind uh, and the body on, on an activity. Um, it also gives them a little bit of income because these products have been sold. Um, and they would intersperse those of that work with periods of structured prayer uh, and uh, meditation. What's the... Um, uh... As an adjective, an uh, anchoristic life, if someone was to describe that, is that an adjective? Anchoritic, we would say. Anchoritic, thank you. Yeah. So what, what would be the difference, is there a difference between monastic life and anchoritic life? There is a difference, but, um, but the two can, there's also quite a bit of fluidity between the two. So when we talk about monastic life, we're usually talking about uh, someone um, who is part of a community, um, a monastic community, whether it's a male monastery or a female convent, um, and whose life is then governed by the set of regulations um, that, um, that, that operate within that um, monastery or convent. Um, whereas if we think about an anchorite, we're thinking about someone who uh, is trying to live apart from that kind of wider community. But there is quite a bit of fluidity between those two states. So let me give you a couple of examples of that fluidity. So in, in Egypt, one of the centers of anchoritic life um, is um, a place um, known as Skeet. Um, and this is uh, 
in the uh, Skeeters is in the desert about um, I suppose about uh, 60 miles to the southeast of Alexandria um, in, in the desert just um, just outside the Nile Delta and this is an area described as by a contemporary in the 4th century as a vast wilderness um, one journeys uh, to it uh, by the signs and courses of the stars water is hard to find um, here men are made perfect in holiness but only those of austere resolution and supreme constancy can endure such a spot so that's a contemporary talking about skeet what do we know about skeet well skeet was actually a community of anchorites which might seem to be a bit of a contradiction in terms um, but it was a place um, where anchorites went and built themselves cells or huts to live in. So they're in a kind of community with other anchorites um, and they would um, periodically be in communication with them. They might um, worship together with them, pray together with them. Um, they would visit each other's huts or, or cells um, and, and, and talk together. Um, so that's one example of um, how of the kind of fluidity between monasticism and um, anchoritic life. Another example um, is more common in Palestine and Syria, uh, where um, sometimes people who are actually members of a monastic community would leave that community for a short period uh, and adopt an anchoritic life. Um, so, um, the monastery of Basaba, um, which is to the southeast of Jerusalem um, in the Judean desert, quite near to the Dead Sea, um, the, the monks uh, who lived there um, uh, lived in a, a kind of semi-community, um, but periodically some of them might go off, uh, sometimes for, uh, to observe the season of Lent, for example, uh, and um, go off with one or two companions um, and they would walk around the Dead Sea, they'd do a kind of loop, walk around the Dead Sea that would take them 40 days um, and, uh, uh, and live in, in solitude uh, away from the rest of the community. And there are plenty of examples from Palestine and Syria of monks who um, leave their settled community and go off and, uh, and live alone, either for short periods or um, for, the, for the rest of their, their lives. So one can't always make a sharp separation between the monastic life and the anchoritic life. The two are kind of intimately connected. Is it always one person? I think in that example, that was two people, right, that you gave? Yeah, yeah. It's Sometimes it's... Um, uh, more than one person. And the reason for this is because um, ancient monasticism, uh, the, the, it, I'm, and I'm talking here about the period between the 3rd century and the 7th century, one of the characteristics of the religious life or the monastic life in this period is quite a strong master-pupil relationship. So um, monks who are known as elders, who, have just, who are experienced in a monastic or anchoritic life um, would um, attract younger um, people around them uh, who wanted to kind of learn how to do it 
uh, and um, they would um, uh, sort of teach them, um, you know, how to, um, I mean, teach them a variety of, of, of skills from the kind of basic practical skills of, of weaving their baskets um, to skills in meditation and, and prayer, um, but also having you being able to put up with the demands, the rigors uh, of that kind of life with loneliness, with boredom, um, with uh, fighting against your own kind of instincts um, uh, and so on. So the master-pupil relationship is really important and that's why there are examples of um, uh, monks like, for example, Saba, who the founder of the monastery of Mar Saba, who would periodically go off in Lent with one or two companions and teach them um, survival skills, basically, um, how to survive in the wild, what to eat, um, uh, uh, and and how to uh, to manage kind of sleeping rough uh, in those kind of conditions. Um, so that that relationship is at the heart of anchoritic life, uh, and it's why um, quite a number of the stories that we have um, uh, revolve around pairs or sometimes um, uh, more than two um, um, anchorites doing this. If those people in that example that you just provided were in a community like a more clearly defined monastery and then they and then at some point they left together to do some of the activities you described there would you say when they're in the monastery in a larger community they're living more of a monastic life and then when they're together more in a secluded area it sounds like there's more austerity um not that there's probably some austerity in the monastery as well but it sounds like there's more austerity uh, in the uh, in the wilderness um, that would be more of a of a yeah. um, anchoritic life. Yes, and and there are clearly marked gradations of monastic life in the in the sources that tell us about this uh, kind of life. It's clear that um, the the sort of basic monasticism is seen as being living in a community within a kind of regulatory framework, uh, and then you can kind of graduate from that to um, a if you like, a kind of semi-monastic, semi-anchoritic life. So in, in uh, I described Skeet in Egypt, which might be thought of as being that, that sort of a life. In Palestine, we have, uh, in the Roman province of Palestine, we have a, an institution known as the Lavra, um, which is a kind of halfway between um, a, a monastery uh, and anchoritic, uh, an anchoritic settlement. And a Lavra um, is, a, a kind of a loose community, we might say a confederation of anchorites um, who would tend to live in cells very often in natural features of the landscape like gorges or wadis where they would inhabit cells or hollow out cells in the cliff face quite near each other um, and they would then live either alone or in pairs in those cells during the week um, and then at weekends, um, they would gather together um, in an, uh, for worship um, in a kind of monastic, in a, in a more monastic setting. Um, so the, the Lavra would have a church or oratory, it would have a bakery um, and other sort of um, buildings for communal gathering. Um, the, uh, they would take the food to last them through the week with them to their cells on a Sunday evening and, and then 
uh, come back again at the weekend. So that's that's um, a kind of a midway point, if you like, that kind of life between settled monasticism and complete solitude. But on the other hand, we do have examples of complete solitude. And um, here, probably the best known example and, and one of the most spectacular examples is someone whom some of your, your listeners might have heard of, um, a Syrian monk called Simeon the Stylite. Um, and Simeon, um, in the fifth, early 5th century, um, he, he joined a, a monastery in Syria um, as a young man uh, and wanted to practice kind of personal austerities within that settled monastic setting. Uh, and Syrian monasteries in this period were quite well known for, um, for this practice where uh, individual monks would uh, kind of adopt as, um, uh, austerities that were physically demanding. So they might go around with heavy weights tied to their uh, shoulders, uh, for example, or they might stay up all night uh, standing in a little kind of stone niche carved in the stone of a church. Uh, and Simeon, um, what, uh, uh, the particular austerity that uh, Simeon did was to tie um, band, iron bands around his, um, his uh, body to restrict his breathing. Uh, so the abbot of his monastery um, decided that this was a bad example um, and that um, this wasn't something that should be done in a monastery uh, because Simeon might be able to uh, withstand such rigours, but he was setting a bad example to other monks who might not be able to. And eventually Simeon is thrown out of the monastery for uh, refusing to uh, modify his, his austere practices. Uh, and so he um, initially finds a cave and lives alone there. Uh, he then finds a kind of empty cistern, um, a water cistern, a water tank, and, and lives there um, until he hits on um, the mode of life, a solitary life, that really makes him famous. Um, and this is um, living on top of a column, and this is where we get the name Stylite, a, 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 um, a stylite is someone who lives on, on top of a column or pillar. Uh, Simeon found a pillar which was um, probably a, um, a, a leftover ruin from an, a, an ancient temple um, and um, uh, constructed himself a kind of platform on top of this pillar um, and climbed to the top um, and simply lived there and never came down from it. And in fact, during the course of um, the next uh, 40 years or so that he supposedly lived on this pillar, he had the height of it added to um, periodically so that he's further and further removed from the ground. Um, and this is a very interesting um, example of solitude, but solitude which is very visible. Uh, the point about this practice is that Simeon wanted to be alone, but he also wanted to be seen by others. He wanted his particular kind of um, holiness, his pursuit of God, to be something that was visible um, and um, that kind of made a statement um, to the villagers um, uh, around the area. He's in, he's in Syria, uh, just really on the edge of the desert in an area where there are kind of, um, he's not in settled habitation, but he's not too far away from settled habitation. Uh, and so he's a striking example of solitude, but solitude which is kind of within plain sight, if you like.
Is it believed that he was proselytizing with those practices? Yeah, he's partly proselytizing, although most of the villagers around in that area would have already been Christian villagers. So he's not, it's not so much that he's um, converting people to Christianity, although there are some examples of other anchorites who are doing that in Syria. Um, what he's doing um, is acting as a, a visible holy man. So part of that is certainly teaching people um, that from the nearby villages about God. Um, he's expounding the scriptures to them. Part of what he's doing is giving a kind of example um, of what it's possible to do. Um, part He's partly also acting as um, a kind of um, advice center. So villagers would go to him with problems um, and he would resolve them through through kind of prayer and, and through a demonstration of his direct contact with God, a direct contact that he has um, secured through his um, practices of prayer and contemplation. He also works miracles um, and um, people consult him um, with problems that other humans can't, can't, can't solve. And he becomes really well known. I mean, the emperor knows about him and, and consults him and people go from far afield He's known as far as far away as Constantinople, uh, and there are kind of tokens and mementos, can, you know, made of Simeon on his pillar, uh, which, which survive um, from from this period. Um, so he's he becomes quite famous um, through that, and and one of the best ways to think of him is really as a kind of um, a sort of not just as a miracle worker, but as a kind of a patron for local communities. He's a mediator of, uh, of disputes, he's a solver of problems, he's a giver of advice. I believe you mentioned the 3rd century in Egypt, the first anchoritic, the first anchorite comes into, um, into the record, somebody that's, that's um, having an anchoritic life. Um, can, you, can you describe that, that person in those events? Yeah, well, um, we know about the word uh, anchorite before we know about a specific person, if that makes sense. So we know the practice because the, um, we have unnamed anchorites appearing in um, records uh, from uh, Egyptian towns and villages in the Nile Delta region um, in the third century. The first anchorite whom we know by name is probably Antony. And I think I talked a little bit about Antony in my last um, uh, the last time mm -hmm. we spoke. Mm -hmm. Anthony um, is someone who comes from a village in the Nile Delta region who inherits a bit of property um, and decides to sell everything he has and adopt um, a, an anchoritic life. Um, so he, he goes initially not too far away from his village and sets himself up in a hut that he constructs by himself. He's got a little patch of land that he cultivates um, grow, growing himself um, food that he can eat, um, uh, but trying to keep himself away from people. Um, and eventually he moves further and further away into the, the desert and he ends up um, in um, a region of the, the desert uh, to the east of the Nile, between the River Nile and the Red Sea, uh, where the monastery of St. Anthony is, is, um, uh, was eventually built. 
Um, and uh, uh, during that sort of progression from village to utter solitude, he passes through various stages, which include shutting himself up in a ruined uh, tower for a while, um, and then only emerging in kind of years later. Um, he's um, someone who also has some form of human contact during that time, so people go to consult with him. Um, a group of pagan philosophers um, tries to or to, to kind of learn from him what, what his secrets are uh, and so on. Um, and he's, he's quite well known during, it, during his own lifetime. Um, and um, uh, we know about him because of a biography that was written about him by the Bishop of Alexandria, a man called Athanasius, uh, in the fourth century. Um, so he's the first real kind of example um, of uh, an anchorite whom we know by name and about whom, about whose kind of practices we know in detail. And he also wrote himself, there are some letters that he wrote um, on kind of instruction in the anchoritic life um, that, that survive. Was he verifiably Christian? Oh yes, yeah, there's, there's no doubt about that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, his, his initial impetus for uh, adopting this life um, was um, because he's very struck by the passage in the Gospel um, where the Gospel of St. Matthew, where Jesus tells a rich man, um, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, go sell everything you have and follow me. And this strikes Anthony as being a kind of literal command to himself. Um, and so he, he goes and does that. He, he has a sister whom he, he provides for. Um, and then he just goes off and, and adopts this, this sort of life. So he is following um, a, a Christian um, life, although it should be said that um, this um, impetus or desire to lead um, a, a life of uh, solitude or semi-solitude in pursuit of God uh, and in pursuit of higher truths is not unique to Christianity. And one of the reasons why um, the philosophers go to visit Antony to learn his secrets is because there's also an interest in um, uh, amongst um, pagan philosophers or non-Christian philosophers in this period, the third and fourth centuries. There's also an interest amongst many of them in how to get close to the divine um, through this kind of withdrawal and a life of contemplation. Um, so most of the, the people I'm talking about are, well, all the people I'm talking about are Christian, but we should be aware that there are kind of non-Christian practices that are quite similar in, in, in some ways. But the, the main difference in terms of the way that um, a, a, a pagan um, uh, anchorite, if, if, if we can conceive of such a thing, would live from a Christian anchorite is um, in the uh, sort of the deliberately austere rigors um, that a Christian anchorite would set for him or herself, um, so that the mode of life is is different. Contemplation, that that state of contemplating God, of being close to God, is earned um, through denial of bodily comforts, um, and um, that's something which is not quite so. Um, so, so much to the fore in, in non-Christian uh, monastic or anchoritic living. 
in this context and looking at the ancient period, is there a difference between a hermetic lifestyle and an anchoritic lifestyle? No, they're, they're just different, um, different terms for the same kind of thing. Um, uh, the, the word hermit um, comes from a different Greek word, eremos, which means a wilderness. So uh, when we talk about a hermit, what we're really talking about is someone who is adopting a kind of landscape, um, which is difficult to live in. Uh, whereas when we talk about anchorite, what we're referring to etymologically is the state of living um, apart from the rest of society, of rejecting society. But actually they come to be the same sort of thing because in order to adopt that um, that solitary lifestyle, that rejection of, of community, you have to find landscapes that are um, deserted uh, and uninhabited. Um, and it's actually worth maybe dwelling on that a, a bit more. The landscapes of the region I'm talking about, the, 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 the kind of, um, the, what's sometimes called the Fertile Crescent, the, the area between um, the Nile and Egypt, uh, swinging around to the east and the north into Palestine, Syria, Asia Minor. That region um, is, it, it of course, is not the same in, in terms of landscape and topography. So in Egypt, we have a real contrast between desert and settled um, habitable areas. The Nile um, is the part of Egypt where you can, you can live. That's where towns, villages are. Um, because those are the areas which are irrigated by the Nile and therefore you can establish settled life. Most of the rest of Egypt um, in this period is uninhabited desert. So there's a real contrast between settled habitation and desert. When you get into um, uh, Palestine or the Holy Land uh, and Syria, um, the, the contrast is not quite so marked. Those landscapes um, are uh, are, are characterized more by what we might call semi-desert. Um, so areas of wilderness where you're never that far away from settled habitation. Um, and, and that's the kind of landscape of someone like Simeon the Stylite, where you could be in a wilderness, but not far away from villages. Um, it's much more difficult to do that in somewhere like Egypt. Uh, and Asia Minor um, is, is, is perhaps more similar to a kind of Syrian landscape. So. Um, the, the nature of your anchoresis, the nature of your anchoritic life, would partly be determined uh, by the kind of landscape in which you find yourself, or the landscape that you yourself adopt. Were they, for someone to be classified as anchoritic, um, for modern day scholars to, to look back and say that person was living an anchoritic lifestyle, did they always have to be unmarried and celibate? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, there are some examples of uh, married men and women who decide to adopt an anchoritic or monastic lifestyle and therefore end their marriage for that purpose. Um, but in most cases, we're talking about um, people who are deliberately adopting a celibate life or in some cases, um, widows or widowers. Um, but celibacy is definitely a really important part of the Christian anchoritic um, life, yes. One of the things that you're giving up is um, 
uh, kind of uh, the, is contact um, of a romantic or sexual nature. So yes, celibacy is really important. Control over the body is really important. Uh, and it's, um, it's easy for us when we read um, the contemporary evidence about um, anchorites and their life lifestyles to kind of dwell on, on celibacy, to think, well, how do they manage that? Um, or, or why would they want to manage that? Um, actually, they, the sources are less preoccupied with the question of sexuality and celibacy than, um, than we might be in kind of projecting backwards. Um, some, um, uh, in, in some cases, anchorites are deliberately fleeing marriages that have been arranged for them that they, that they didn't want. Um, in, in other cases, they are troubled by um, kind of sexual desire uh, and have to kind of undergo um, the, the sort of temptations of, of, um, of sexual desire, but they're trying to remove themselves as far as, far as possible from um, the um, society of, um, uh, of um, or male anchorites are trying to remove themselves from the society of, of, um, of, of women as far as possible. Um, but it's also worth saying that um, um, anchorites are, are, are also kind of taking, well, they're, they are, they're giving thought to um, the possibility of same-sex relationships. Um, and this is something that um, someone like Saba, whom I mentioned earlier, as one of the kind of founding monks um, in Palestine in the fifth um, century, um, is uh, is preoccupied with it. We we know from um, the life of Saba that uh, he, when he first wants to um, enter a lavra, um, uh, he is told by uh, Euthemius and, uh, and who who runs a lavra, um, no, I don't take beardless young men into my lavra because of the temptations, the possible sexual temptations for the older monks. So you have to wait till you're older and more experienced. Um, and um, uh, that, so that, that, that I think shows us that there is an understanding of uh, same-sex attraction. Uh, and I think the danger is not so much that same-sex attraction is seen as possibly being worse than attraction to the opposite sex. It's rather that any kind of sexual contact um, is seen as being something that will threaten and undermine the state of, of um, being an anchorite. And as a scholar, if someone was having sexual relations, you wouldn't, you would not classify that person as an anchorite at that point. Well, there are some examples of anchorites who go wrong, <laughs> so um, who are tempted and um, uh, and do um, kind of have sexual relations. Um, uh, and, and then have to confess this and so on and can go back to uh, do penance and go back to an anchorite life. But yeah, you can't live in a, a settled state um, of a sexual relationship or, or marriage and be, an, uh, be a Christian anchorite. The, the two are seen as not going together. Do women show up? You, uh, do women show up in the records in the ancient period as practicing an anchoretic, anchoretic lifestyle? Yes, there are some examples of women. There are fewer examples of women than there are of men adopting the anchoritic life, but there are certainly examples of women. 
Uh, and one of the questions that, um, that, that as historians we have to think about is why are there fewer women living this life than men? Um, one of the, it used to be thought that, well, it's because it's such a demanding life that it was more difficult for, uh, for women to do that. Um, it's now, um, we, we, we think about it in rather more sophisticated ways now. Um, it was probably more difficult for women, not because of the demands of anchoritic life itself, um, but because women had less independence and freedom of action, less autonomy to adopt those kinds of lives if they wanted to in the first place. Uh, but there's also another important consideration is the bias of the sources. Almost all the source material that we have about anchorites and monks is written by men. Uh, and most of them um, have a, a kind of vested interest in um, promoting the anchoritic life as something lived by men rather than women. Um, so where we do have um, examples of women, uh, it, they tend to be uh, kind of um, uh, sort of, uh, I suppose, afterthoughts, one might say. So I can give you an example from one of the best sources we have for anchorites in Syria. This is a, a, a text known as, um, where well, it's called A History of the Monks of Syria, and it was written by um, a bishop uh, called Theodoret, Theodoret of Cyrus, uh, in the um, 5th century. And so um, his history of the monks of Syria um, goes through uh, a number of male um, uh, anchorites. He gives them examples of them, he tells their stories, and then toward the end of the text he says, after recording the way of life of the heroic men, I'm quoting him here, I think it useful to treat also of women who have contended no less if not more, for they are worthy of still greater praise when despite having a weaker nature, they display the same zeal as the men and free their sex from its ancestral disgrace. Uh, so he's reflecting there the thought that's common to many um, clerics at the time, many priests uh, at the time, that women are um, a kind of lesser um, species than men. Um, he's extremely gendered in his view he's condescending towards the female anchorites he talks about and he only talks about three or four having been through 20 or 30 male examples he then will just give you three or four women to say yes well there were some some women as well and here they are and didn't they do well so it's very um it's a very gendered kind of approach and that bias of the sources is one of the things that makes it difficult for us to understand exactly how many um female anchorites there were, but we know that there were um, uh, there were women who adopted this life and, and managed it successfully. What's the uh, earliest citation of a woman that show, shows up in the re records as practicing an anchoritic lifestyle? Do, do, do you recall what, what century and where that, that was? Yeah, yeah the, um, the, um, the earliest uh, is actually uh, from the early fourth century, the earliest that I that I think I know about is from the early fourth century, um, uh, and there's a um, a couple of women who are living an anchoritic life in Egypt, uh, who are mentioned not by name, but they're mentioned in uh, a tax record actually, or in a rental agreement um, in an Egyptian town called Oxyrhynchus uh, on the Nile, um, and. Um, 
it's clear that they're living as anchorites, but um, unusually they're they're living within a village or a town. Um, so they're not actually going out into the desert. But there are, from later in the fourth century, certainly examples um, of women who did that. One of the problems is that some of the examples that we have um, are not necessarily verifiable from um, other external sources. So some of them are uh, kind of, if you like, legendary um, women. So probably the best known is someone called Mary the Egyptian, um, who is um, a fourth century woman who uh, supposedly had been a prostitute in Alexandria, um, who then goes to the Holy Land, to Jerusalem, to um, uh, to, to kind of ply her trade there, uh, and um, is converted to to a religious life in Jerusalem, um, and um, through uh, kind of the, um, the, the the text, the life of Mary the Egyptian describes her as um, kind of stumbling across the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, and and suddenly being kind of filled with this sense of um, the overpowering holiness of the place and wants to learn more and is converted to Christianity and then goes off into the desert near the River Jordan and lives uh, uh, the life of, a, of an anchoress, uh, a female anchorite, um, for many, many years and then is finally discovered. Now, that story, as we in the form that we have it, is legendary, um, but it's probably based on some kind of reality. Um, it's, it's, it's based on probably more than one real example of women who did um, go off into the desert and live the anchoritic life. It's just that we don't, we don't know the, the necessarily those real details. Okay. Uh, doctrine and scripture, did they almost always carry doctrine and scriptures with them in their travels and in their practices? Yeah, this is, um, uh, okay, so that's a, an interesting and really quite difficult question um, to ask. How much did they, how much of scripture did they know? Uh, it depends. Um, some of the monks or anchorites we're talking about were extremely well-educated um, and therefore were well up in doctrine um, and knew their scriptures, knew the Bible well. Um, others... Uh, were probably less well-educated. We know of a number in Egypt, for example, who were um, probably illiterate um, when they started an anchoritic life and had to be taught to read, uh, to read scripture. Um, we know that the kind of basis of the... I, I talked earlier about um, a, a kind of regime of prayer um, and worship. The basis of um, worship was knowing the Psalms, the, um, the Old Testament book of Psalms. That was how they started um, prayer, really, was with reciting the Psalms. And so that's the, if you were illiterate and, and, and uneducated, what you would start off doing is being taught um, the Psalms um, by uh, an, an older monk. And that's the way, that was your kind of way into worship, but also your way into um, doctrine. In terms of um, uh, sort of scriptural knowledge, um, some uh, um, anchorites clearly knew their scripture extremely well, uh, were able to expound it to others. 
Um, others probably as well. And there are examples of some anchorites who um, who uh, almost kind of take uh, pride uh, in being um, relatively uneducated and, and, and being kind of simple in, in their faith. In terms of doctrine, um, this is a period between the fourth and seventh centuries when what the church taught was still being kind of decided on, was still being was being discussed, was being hammered out in a series of councils uh, amongst the church hierarchy. Um, and um, the, the, the count, main councils of the, of the church start in the 320s, uh, and um, these decide uh, basically on the Christian theology that is going to be, um, be the, the, the basis of doctrine. So um, doctrines like the relationship between the persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that's decided on at a series of councils in the 4th century. In the 5th century, a further series of councils decides on the, the nature of Christ. Um, was Christ uh, entirely human and entirely divine at the same time? Um, and how do you define that, um, that, that relationship in, in kind of um, theological terms that makes sense? Um, so what the monastic movement that we're talking about, the Anchoritic movement, takes place against a backdrop of the development of Christian teaching and Christian theology. And that backdrop sometimes comes to the fore. Um, so in Egypt in the late fourth century, for example, anchorites um, at places like Skeet are riven um, by a division um, over um, doctrine. Uh, and um, this happens again in um, the um, Anchoritic communities in the Holy Land, Palestine, in the um, late fifth and into the sixth centuries. So sometimes, what you believe as an anchorite or a monk um, comes to the fore and is and is is prevalent in the in the source material from the time. And sometimes, the monastic movement um, comes to be uh, deployed or exploited um, by the church hierarchies. Church hierarchies on the whole want to have monks and anchorites on their side um, because um, it, it, it shows that they are, um, that, they, that they're in the right, as it were. Um, so I mentioned Athanasius, the author of the biography of Antony uh, in the fourth century. Athanasius, as Bishop of Alexandria, was an extremely political figure uh, and he's drawn into um, church politics throughout his career uh, and one of the reasons he writes the life of Antony is to try and bolster his own credentials as someone who's on the right side of doctrine church teaching at a time when that teaching is is under dispute um, and so he's trying to kind of mobilize people like Antony um, to be um, to, to show that he's in the right in under an hour today, Andrew, we covered a lot of ground with this topic. <laughs> is there yeah. is there anything else before we wrap up the conversation today? Is there anything else that um, you want to really get across in this episode on the topic of ancient anchorites, ancient Christian anchorites in the uh, Mediterranean, and, their, and of course their associated practices? 
Yeah. Well, perhaps I'll just return to the question of terminology, um, and just to maybe to say that um, the sources that we have, that the texts that, that we have about monks and acolytes, um, are quite fluid in the terminology that they use. So they will sometimes interchangeably use the word anchorite or monk. And you have to then kind of read into the description of their way of life, what they fall in, what sort of category one puts them in. But there are also some other interesting words um, and phrases that are used to describe them. And perhaps I'll just kind of leave with this thought. I, I mentioned um, the, the bishop, Theodoret of Cyrus, who, who is our main source for the life of Simeon the Stylat. Throughout his text, The History of the Monks of Syria, Theodoret doesn't talk about monks. He uses a word that is really strange um, to us, um, thinking about uh, this way of life. He talks about them as athletes. He's full of athletic metaphors. He starts off, his text starts, the prologue, how fine it is to behold the contests of excellent men, the athletes of virtue. So he's constantly using athletic metaphors. Um, and we have to think about the ancient, or well, we think about the ancient Olympics, uh, for, for example. Um, uh, the, uh, the ancient sports in the Olympics, which are running and jumping and throwing heavy things and wrestling and so on. And his text is full of this. So he sees um, the anchoritic life as a series of athletic contests in which the athletes of God perfect their bodies uh, in order to present themselves uh, in uh, a suitable state uh, to the God. I can't help but, uh, based on the mention, Andrew, of the ancient Olympic Games, I uh, can't help but plug an episode that was published about a week ago if anybody wants to look up and learn more about the ancient Olympic Games, Professor Judith Berenger of the University of Edinburgh was on the show and uh, covered that, that topic. So I wanted to make the link there for, for everybody. Okay, Andrew, this was a very good chat. It was constructive. We covered a lot of ground, like I said, in under an hour. And it is always a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me again, Andrew. So the book that I mentioned, everybody, at the start of the episode that Dr. Yochinsky co-authored. It's entitled Latin and Greek Monasticism in the Crusader States. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Andrew and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast, and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.